Well, good morning, Mars Hill, again. It's good to be with you all. And this week I come to you uh, with a heavy heart. For this last week has been full of all sorts of chaos in our nation. And it seems uh, to only compound on the last six months. Uh, The shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin at the end of last week. Uh, The subsequent uh, protests that have happened in both the streets and in various sporting events. Uh, The shooting of a couple of protesters. And then uh, recently, uh, the southern shores of the United States being battered again by a hurricane. Uh, All leaves me feeling uh, a bit overwhelmed, if I may say so. And on top of that, a school starting for many of our kids this past week, whether that's in person or online, and for us parents trying to navigate the new reality of what that looks like and what that means and everything that comes along with it. And so as we enter into this time together, I would like to offer us a word of prayer. And so let's pray. God, when the waters rage all around us, when our nations seem to crumble, when it appears that the mountains are going to be swallowed into the heart of the sea, your invitation to us is to be still and know that you are God. And so God, may, uh, may you calm our fears and anxieties. May you still our hearts with your great love. May we witness uh, your justice and your power and your might. And may we see reconciliation and healing in our nation. God, we long uh, for the land in which uh, we reside, for the relationships that we have, for the ways that we structure our systems to be uh, representative of the love that you have for us and that we have for you. And so God, make us more and more into uh, the image of your son, Jesus, and that your church may lead the way uh, in proclaiming your good news for all people. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so today we turn uh, to John chapter 12. And although the sermon that I had in my mind a week or a couple of weeks ago uh, is not the sermon that is coming to you today, uh, because of the recent events, I still believe that God's work, word speaks to us. That in a powerful and mysterious way, that when we encounter this text, we are encountering the living God and uh, God is speaking to us. And so let's turn our hearts and ears to this story to see what God has to offer for us. John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. 
Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a liter of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who would later betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1905, William Sidney Porter, under the pen name O. Henry, put to paper what has been come to known as uh, a piece of literature, a short story uh, that is known for its comedic irony ending. You see, the short story tells of a young married couple, Mr. and Mrs. Dillingham Young, a Jim and Della, as they're known in the story. And uh, this young married couple is poor in money, uh, but they're rich in two things that each of them has that they treasure. Uh, For Jim, it's a pocket watch that's been passed down through the generations, and he keeps it with him wherever he goes. And for his wife, Della, it's her long, beautiful, flowing hair. Now, it's the day before Christmas, and Della sets out to purchase her husband Jim a gift with a $1.87. And she knows that it won't get him much, that it won't get him the gift that she desires to get for her husband, to show her love and her affection. And so she goes to the local salon, and she pulls down her hair, and she asks how much will they give her for it? And they tell her $20. And so she sets out after losing her hair to go and purchase Jim a gift. And she knows just the thing, a gold chain for his pocket watch. And so she sets out to go home with chain and a little change in hand to wait for her husband's arrival, excited for what she has purchased him. Now, Upon coming home, Jim is a bit shocked uh, to encounter his wife and her new hairdo. And I would imagine uh, his face expresses a bit of this surprise and shock. And surely, uh, O. Henry tells us about that in the story. And she pleads with him saying, it'll grow back. I'm still the same person that you love. And from out of the pocket of his coat, he pulls out a gift for her. And he says, open this gift and you'll see why my face was so when I entered into the house and saw your hair. 
and she opens up this gift and it's a beautiful set of combs that she has wanted for a long time. But she knew that they would never be able to afford. And she proclaims, my hair will grow back and I'll be able to use these combs. Now let me show you the gift that I got for you. And so she holds out this gold pocket watch chain. And she says, let's see your watch. Let's put it on there. And Jim puts his arm around his beloved wife. And he says, I sold my watch to buy you the combs. This story uh, tells the irony of each of them giving up what they loved the most for the person they loved the most. That love cost them something. What has love cost you? Here in chapter 12 of John's Gospel, we're told that Jesus has returned to Bethany from the wilderness. And we are now in the final week of Jesus' life in ministry. That's right. Of the 21 chapters in John's Gospel, the final 10 are devoted to Jesus' final week on earth. His final week of ministry And so I think John is trying to tell us something, trying to point to something here in his gospel about the importance of this final week and what it means for the world and what it means for us. And so this chapter, this story that we have encountered here is the beginning of that final week. It's the opening notes of this final movement. And the scene is set with it being six days before the Passover, one of the big three festivals that people would come to from all over Israel, from the surrounding area, over a week in advance to prepare themselves, to ritually purify themselves in preparation for this festival. Uh, There's some accounts that the city would swell three, four, five times its amount because so many people were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And the Passover of these three big festivals is perhaps the biggest. Because the Passover tells the story of the God of Israel becoming the King of Israel. That before the people of Israel had earthly kings, before they requested to have an earthly king rule over them, they had one king, and her king was God. And so this scene is being set. That the Passover, this festival that celebrates how God had freed the people from an oppressive ruler, How God had freed the people and saved them not to turn around and to re-enslave them as other earthly kings would do, but to turn around to free them, to liberate them, to save them, to bless them, for them to be for the world, God's treasured possession. To display to the world what God had done for them. To display God's costly love. So the The Passover then is a celebration. It's a celebration that looks back to what God had 
done. A celebration to what God had done in Egypt, what God had done in Assyria, what God had done in Babylon to free God's people and to give them a land of their own. And at the same time, the Passover looked with one eye forward into the future with hope that God would do it again. That what God had done before, that God had done some amazing things in love, God would do again. And that God would indeed be Israel's and the world's true Lord and King. And that it wouldn't be Pharaoh that it wouldn't be Herod, and that it wouldn't be Caesar. God did some great things because of love. So all of this history, all of that longing for God to do something incredible again, all of that hope is wrapped up into this one week. And this particular story is that pivotal moment when it is coming into fruition. And John is trying to communicate to us as the readers, as the listeners of this text, what he has been trying to tell throughout the entire gospel. That something is happening here that something incredible is going on. And so, we're told it's six days before the Passover and that Jesus comes to Bethany. And here Jesus is dining with some guests. Maybe you remember them from just a chapter before, a small little story where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now he is having dinner with Lazarus. And Mary takes a half a liter or a pound, as it's described in some other texts, of perfume, expensive perfume, and she pours it on Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. And the house is filled with the fragrance of perfume. What a strange and perhaps uncomfortable moment for everyone in that room. I mean, this seems to be such an act of extravagance, such an act of, of love and intimacy, that this perfume, as the writer tells us, and as Judas describes later, could have been sold for a year's worth of wages. Now think about that. Think about someone giving you a year's worth of wages. What would you what would you even do with that? It's incredible. It's remarkable. And something this costly, this expensive, points to one of two things. Either Mary is flush with cash or that this was a family heirloom that was passed down throughout the generations that one could sell if they came upon challenging times. Now, since Mary does not use this on her own brother Lazarus when he dies, it seems to point to the latter rather than the former. That this precious perfume, this expensive perfume, was a family heirloom that was passed down through the generations 
and was a safety net, was used to help support and protect the family in a time of trouble. And here she breaks it open and she douses Jesus's feet. And it says it, it fills the whole room with that smell. You know what that's like when uh, a particular smell just takes over the room. Uh, when you come home and uh, the crock pot has been on all day and you walk into the delicious smell of dinner. Or perhaps when uh, you walk by uh, a middle school and you can smell the, the body spray all over the place. I remember the first day of middle school, my friend Ben dropped a bottle of cologne in his bathroom as he was getting ready. And we could smell him down the hall and through the entire wing of the building. It smelled like a really nice car air freshener. It sort of took over the space. And here, Mary pours this expensive perfume all over Jesus' feet. And then she does something incredible. And perhaps even undignifying in those times, she takes her hair showing her hair, and she wipes Jesus' feet with it. I mean, if you were going to anoint someone, if you were going to use something that costly, that expensive, it seems like you would at least do it on uh, their head like you would for a king or a priest. Why does Mary do it on Jesus' feet? It seems excessive and reckless, and costly, and perhaps even prodigal. But I think this is precisely the story that John is trying to tell throughout his gospel. This is exactly what John wants us to see and to think about as we enter into this final week of Jesus's life. That God's excessive, reckless, prodigal love for all of creation is coming to bear in this final week of Jesus' life. That it doesn't make sense. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Jesus was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. And nothing was made without him that has been made. And this thing, that Jesus came and moved into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson wrote. That this, this God came and dwelled among creation. The creator came and dwelled among creation. That doesn't make sense. It's reckless, it's excessive, and it was costly. And we see this throughout John's gospel, this excessive and costly nature with Jesus turning water into wine, with the words proclaiming, for God so loved the world that God gave God's only son, that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We see this in Jesus having a conversation with an outsider, a Samaritan woman at the well. The excessive nature of, of Jesus' love and power in raising Lazarus from the dead. This particular scene of his feet being anointed. The excessive nature and the upside down 
uh, character of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and then washing his disciples' feet. And lastly, at the end of this extravagant week that John is pulling out for us, the crucifixion. The story that John is trying to tell throughout his gospel and that we get a small picture of here, a microcosm of in this particular story is that the nature of God's kingdom is upside down. That Jesus is a different kind of king. That Jesus is a servant king and that God did something great because of love. And it was costly. God did something great because of love and it was costly. And yet what I find equally striking is that what God has done for all of creation, what God has done for all of the world, what God did for the universe, God has done for you. It's what God has done for me. And maybe you simply need to hear those words this morning. That in a season where there's been so much upheaval, a season that's felt so costly, where, where it seems like we've already given up so much, to hear the words that God loves you and that God's costly love is for you. And here in this scene, as Mary anoints and in some ways baptizes Jesus' feet with his perfume and Judas is furious about it. Jesus responds with, leave her alone. You see, Jesus never misses the individual that's in front of him. That Jesus sees the person in front of him. Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you. Jesus sees Mary right in front of him with her offering, with her act of costly love. And so in some ways, this whole story is a picture of the good news, of the gospel, of God becoming a servant king, God showing God's costly love, God's costly redeeming love for all of the world. And it being not for just the world, but it being for you. God did something great because God loves you. But why did Mary do this? Why did Mary do this excessive act of love? I mean, perhaps we can wrap our mind around God's infinite love, God's incredible love, and God coming to be a person to show us God's love. But why did Mary do this? I think Mary does this because of what she encounters right before this story. Because of what we heard in chapter 11. You see, Mary has her own experience of loss. Her own experience of brokenness her own experience of carrying a cross, that in the midst of her brother dying, Jesus 
comes to her and cares for her. Jesus comes to her in that moment and shares in her experience of loss and brokenness and sadness and death. Jesus weeps with her and enters into that moment. And I think that is incredibly forming for her, that that she experiences this gospel story for herself, that what John is trying to say in his entire gospel of Jesus becoming a a human, of God entering into the world and sharing in our brokenness, sharing in our pain, sharing in our suffering, that in that we hear some good news, that God is with us. And so Jesus enters into this tragic and broken moment with her. And now she is caught up in that story and is, t- is telling it in her own way to the world. She's so formed by this costly love that she pours out this perfume on Jesus' feet, that she gives an example of costly love herself, that the story has formed her and shaped her and changed her and she, she has to live it out. Mars Hill, I think in order for us to be grounded and to be full of the fruit of the Spirit and to live out this costly love in the next four months, I think we need to be more intimate with the story of Jesus than with our social media feeds. I think we need to be more formed by the songs of the saints than with the chorus of fear that is all around us. I think we need to be more intimate with God the creator than we are with statistics and memes. I think we need to be more formed and shaped and empowered and inspired by the spirit than we are by headlines. I think unless we find ourselves caught up and formed in this gospel story, this good news story that we find here in John 12, that we will consistently discover over the next four months, the next year, the next four years, that we have completely missed Jesus's invitation to life and flourishing and peace through carrying our own cross. You see, Mary gives us a picture of discipleship. She is a disciple. She gives us an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus in this costly love, a self-emptying devotion and worship to the one who did so for the entire world. Disciples are people who have had an encounter with the servant king and now follow him in the way of costly love. Disciples are people who have had an encounter with the servant king 
and now follow him in the way of costly love. Mary is first and foremost a disciple. She gets it. And it was costly, expensive, and perhaps even undignifying for Mary to follow Jesus in this way, to show love, to to carry this particular cross. But that is the way of the kingdom. It is the kingdom come. And Mars Hill, I think for us, if we are to be disciples who followed the way of Jesus, who followed the way of costly love and carry our cross, it will be costly. That living out of that story, that living out of that particular love, costly love, as we address systemic racism in our nation, as we uh, address oppression and violence, as we pursue justice and healing and reconciliation, that it will cost us something. That it will cost you something. Because love is costly. It may cost you socially, with friends and family. It may cost you professionally. It may even cost you relationally. But this is the way of Jesus and it's the invitation that we are given here through the life and actions of Mary. For as much as as Mary displays a costly love, we have Judas. And he's not really concerned about the poor. He doesn't really want to help the poor. It's not for him about making measurable change. It's not even about love about control and power and having the last word and it's about appearance but for Mary for Mary she's willing to sacrifice the little that she has in following Jesus where Judas is willing to sacrifice Jesus Mary is willing to sacrifice the little that she has to follow Jesus in this costly love. But Judas is willing to sacrifice Jesus. The love of God is costly. Following Jesus is costly. And I imagine, Mars Hill, as we continue to try to be a community that follows in this costly love, that speaks out against the systemic racism in our country, that points out when wrongs have been made, when we confess that we ourselves have been a part of these systems at times, that it will be costly and that it will be difficult and it will be challenging. But the good news that Jesus is there with us, carrying his cross as we carry ours. And in Jesus' great act of love and by the Spirit, we too are able to love costly. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
And so now Mars Hill, we turn to a physical representation of this costly love, of Jesus' costly love to us. For on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gave us this meal. And for centuries, Christians have celebrated it and have remembered it and have participated in it as a way of of being a part of this costly love story. And so I say, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And so the story has been passed down to us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after they had feasted, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. It's the cup of costly love. Whenever you drink of it, do this in remembrance of me. And so whenever we take this bread and we drink from this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so we ask God's spirit, come Holy Spirit, come upon these elements that they may be to us the body and blood of Christ. And that in taking them, in receiving them, we may participate in your story. And so as many grains have been gathered into this one loaf, and grapes from many vines into this one cup. Send your spirit, we pray, that your church may be gathered into your kingdom, O God. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And so together we proclaim the mystery of our faith, the mystery of this costly love, that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again. So come, take, eat, and savor. These are the gifts of God for the people of God.